0: So the vagus is the biggest nerve in the body, It goes to every single organ. And we did know that when you meditate, you calm the vagus nerve and you therefore have uh, deep breathing, more relaxed breathing and lower the heart rate and let the GI system relax. But no one ever knew how could meditation increase immunity.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Everyday Leadership. Today, I have Dr. John Leaf with us, who is a neuropsychiatrist who has pioneered the creation of integrated treatment units that focus on complex patients combining both medical, psychiatric, and neurological problems. He is an expert. He is an innovator in um, developed specialized, innovative treatments for brain injury. Patient, and you'll have heard me talk about neuroplasticity in the past. So we're definitely going to talk about that today. And as well as that, he's a distinguished life fellow and an author of the acclaimed latest book. He's not the books called The Secret Language of Cells, which delves into like biology and world actions based, based around cells, which we're going to talk about a little bit as well. He takes basically high level, complicated scientific concept and just breaks them down into things and ways that they're applicable to our ideas and lives.
0: Dr. John, how are you doing? Well, I'm great. Well, thanks for the kind introduction. It's an absolute pleasure.
1: I wanted to go, I know you've been doing this for years, but I'm curious as to some of your origin story and how did you step into this world, into this
0: field? For many years, I ran programs that treated very difficult, complex patients, medical patients who have neurological and mental problems and psychiatric patients who have a lot of physical or neurological problems. And so I was constantly thinking, researching what is the mind and what is the body and how they influence each other and can you separate them? And uh, so I began looking at what is the mind? we talk about the mind and after a lot of research, it became very clear to me that we have no idea what the mind is. And, the you know, scientists, because we have no idea what the mind is and we can't put it into our current physics and chemistry and biology, they make believe that it doesn't exist. And they say it's just epiphenomenon. But the one thing we know, everyone knows, is their subjective experience. I mean, that that's that comes from Descartes. I mean, everyone knows that they have subjective experience. So to say that doesn't exist is ridiculous. That is the primary thing in our lives. And the problem is we don't know what that is and we have no way to explain it. And when you look at the brain, there's no place for it. There's no module for it. There's no center for it. And so I began looking at uh, brains and I looked at smaller and smaller brains and found that all the animals are extremely intelligent, but Remarkably intelligent as tiny brains, bees and ants and termites are extremely intelligent. Bees have symbolic logic. They have no abstract concepts. They can memorize five miles of different plants and prioritize which one to go to and where, and then come back and communicate in great detail exactly where to go and what the plants are. With tiny little brains that don't make any sense when you look at the human brain compared to the bee brain, And the I can go on about that. But then I started a a blog and was researching all these topics in the blog. And then it went down to cells. And I began to see how incredibly smart cells are. So for 10 years, I basically, people at the hospital say, do I know foreign languages? And I say, yes, I do. I know molecular biology and (laughs) molecular genetics. And so I saw myself as a translator of the top articles from Nature Science Magazine into English. And for 10 years, I translated articles into English. And then it became apparent to me that nowhere is there a summary of the basis of it all, because the basis of everything in biology are cells that are talking to each other. The whole definition of life needs to be changed. In other words, it was a good book by Zimmer on how to define life. And every definition you have, like it can reproduce. Well, I can't reproduce anymore and I'm not dead. So the question is, everyone has faults and there's no way to define life. But the closest they come is a cell that reproduces, has metabolism. But I am now adding to that definition and is intelligent and talks and knows where they are and knows what's happening and communicates about everything. And even viruses. I write about viruses in my book. Viruses have been found communicating now. About four or five years ago, the signals were found and now about 15 different dialects have been found of of viruses talking to each other and they seem to understand each other's language and they talk to each other about whether they should keep their microbe alive or dead or uh, what should we do. And there's all kinds of communication going on, even at that level. So I had to write the book that showed and I wrote the book. My editors kept putting in jargon and I kept taking it out. I, I said, what good does it do to call it a leukocyte when you could say white blood cell and everyone would know what you're talking about. So I wrote the book in English, I think, and and anyone can understand it who has a high school level of uh, science. And what I show is a panoramic visual thing of the life of cells and how amazing the communication is and That's how it went. Everyone knows that neurons talk to each other. I mean, I think everyone knows there's an axon and they send a message and there are circuits that that send signals. But the truth is neurons talk in a lot of other ways. They send signals sideways to T-cells. They communicate through electromagnetic fields. They communicate through little sacks of information that they send. They communicate through nanotubes between each cell. And then, but the communication is just as elaborate with every single other cell. So I could go on. I can give you examples of that. But that's how I got into
1: it. I mean, you just, you just mentioned T-cells. And I remember reading about, you talked about the fact that T-cells tell the brain cells to kind of slow down. And when you get some feelings of, I'm not feeling sick, I'm not feeling well, that's your body's signal telling you to just rest and take it easy. And I guess I want to ask some questions Bit, and actually elaborate more around that feeling because it's quite easy yeah. to feel that and you just ignore it and you keep on pushing all the way through it. But it sounds well, like you were saying that that was a signal that your body was telling you that you need to listen to.
0: For a long time, scientists thought that there were no immune cells in the brain. And then they discovered this microglia that went there in the penis and lived there evermore and had children and it sort of takes care of a little area of each neuron and taps it and cleans it up. And anyway, but what they didn't know is that the T cell, the T cell is the master immune cell. That's the brains of the immune cell. And they're the ones that direct all the other cells, including the B cells that make antibodies, but they direct the show. So first they respond, but then they call in the T cell. And the T cell sort of directs everyone. And the T cell is trained in a college to uh, not destroy human cells, but to fight against anything that shouldn't be there. But no one had any idea that there were almost half a million T-cells in the cerebral spinal fluid. And they found these T-cells right in the brain fluid and they were signaling back and forth to the neurons, to the brain cells, to the astrocytes. And example. so it goes both ways. So examples of that communication are when we're sick, the T-cell knows we're sick because the T-cell is dealing with it. And the T-cell then sends a signal to the neuron to create the sick feeling. So they send a signal, the neuron creates the sick feeling, which means we're tired, lethargic, we have to lie down, and this is so the body will rest and help the T cell fight the infection. When the infection's over, only the T cell can tell the neuron to go back to uh, normal, and then from then on it sends a pulse, stay normal cognition. So the T cell is necessary for the brain cell to keep our thinking going. That's just one thing. Now, there's a thing called neuroplasticity where the brain changes itself and learns from experience. And we could talk about that. But one aspect of that is that there's one little area where no new neurons are created in the brain after the fetus. Like a trillion cells are made and then it's honed down about 80 billion. And it basically stays the same our whole lives. These same neurons live for like 90 years. But in one little, two little areas, one in the nose, and one in the memory center, we're making about a thousand new cells every day, which are associated with memory. And we can t- talk more about that. But the point I'm making here is that the T cell is signaling to the brain to keep making these, these memory cells. Now in depression, so in acute stress, we actually are more alert, but if the stress goes on, then we get a brain fog and the brain fog in depression and in stress is the T cell telling the brain to make less memory cells. So the T cell is telling the brain cell to make less brain cells. And when we're less depressed, the T cell cells go back to normal. So this is one, that's one direction. Now, meanwhile, the neurons we found no one ever knew this either. The neurons can create inflammation. When we are signaled either from an infection or from social isolation or loneliness, any social thing, both the T cells and the brain cells are all part of that response to it. And so let me give you an example. These are called neuroimmune circuits, these are communication circuits that involve the immune system and the brain. And the discovery of these circuits is very important. Like chronic pain, it's like it's going to help explain many of the chronic pain syndromes, which are neural immune circuits, not just neurons. These are not just neurons. These are neurons talking to a whole group of other cells that are not usual. Let me give you two examples. So everyone, we knew for a long time that in meditation, the vagus nerve is involved in calming the breath. The vagus nerve is the nerve that goes throughout the whole body and is this parasympathetic against the sympathetic. Fight and flight or the rest kind of thing. Anyway, so the vagus is the biggest nerve in the body. It goes to every single organ. And we did know that when you meditate, you calm the vagus nerve and you therefore have uh, deep breathing, more relaxed breathing, and lower the heart rate and let the GI system relax. But no one ever knew how could meditation... Increase immunity. Well, what was found is that in these neuroimmune circuits, the neurons signal, just like immune cells, the special signals of immune cells is called cytokines. The neurons are sending these immune signals, just like immune cells, and the vagus nerve sends signals that increases 200 different immune factors against viruses through meditation. And the more you meditate, the more these nerves. So, but neurons can also create inflammation. Like recently, very recently, it was discovered that when you have arthritis and you have a joint in this, in your right elbow, how does that get to your left elbow? Well, it travels through the nervous system. We now know that the inflammation from one place actually travels through neurons as a signal. And then the neuron in the other place creates the inflammation in the new joint. So neurons are sending inflammation information and they're highly involved in all infections. That's one thing. Let me give you another example. No one has any idea how acupuncture works. In the West, we would think that acupuncture has something to do with energy fields or flow. And in the West, that would be blood or neurons. Also, now some people think fascia, which is the connective tissue, has electronic properties. But anyway, there were no obvious correlation between meridians or these lines in acupuncture with our physiology. It didn't make it, although it worked. It didn't make any sense how it worked. So then recently in understanding the neuroimmune signaling that's going on, we found that you have an acupuncture point in the wrist and you put in a needle and you trigger it with electricity. What actually is happening, what they found is that it triggers a T cell that is in the tissue under that point, the T cell then travels over and then signals to a neuron, uh, and then it goes through the nervous system to the other part of the body. So this wrist thing can affect the spleen on the other part of the body. So again, these signaling are going back and forth. And I was surprised. This is why Harvard Business Review chose my book, as a, because they said, wow, this proves that the mind and the body are the same thing. They're not connected. There's no difference. So the brain is the body. In other words, if you think of mind in the brain, you have to think of mind in the whole body because all the cells are involved in the conversation.
1: I guess I can see why some people are finding, some people but even HBR were very like mind blown by that because that's a complete different way of looking at the mind and, and the body in, in the way that you've kind of just described. I mean, you're basically saying there isn't a separation between both of them. I am curious if I was to make this really, really practical. If you're talking about the mind and the body, when we have negative feelings, whether it's, I don't know, hopelessness, stress, helplessness, whatever it is, those things that can create stress in our mind, is that why we then feel that in our body as well because there is no separation between both of them. So the more we have those, I don't know, those thoughts, those desires, those feelings, it starts to manifest itself in physical ways in our body. Is that why there isn't that, that separation there?
0: This is how I started it's treating illnesses that come from psychiatry to medicine and neurology, and illnesses from neurology medicine and psychiatry, you can't separate them in actual fact. And you can't think of emotion without the body without the organs it's part of the experience of an emotion it includes heart rate it includes the physical skin it includes all the organs of the body are part of the every mental response and immune cells are as responsive to loneliness and isolation as brain cells they both respond together to everything So it's just another way of looking at it. And we're not going to be getting solutions, medications for depression, et cetera, without understanding this. In other words, it's a slightly more complicated way to think about biology, but at least it shows where to look. The place to look are these signals between all the different cells and what is the community of cells that are signaling around an issue. It used to be you'd study the kidney, you know, you're you're a kidney specialist, you study the kidney and kind of study the kidney cell. Now you can't do that because that kidney cell is talking to the blood cells, it's talking to the brain cells, it's talking to immune cells, it's talking, and microbes are very much part of that. Everywhere you read, microbes are doing this, that, and the other thing, and no one explains why. And my book explains why. It's very simple. The reason why microbes can be influential in our lives, so influential that they affect the brain, obesity, diabetes, and everything, is that they speak the same language, and they therefore are part of the conversation, and they become part of circuits. They're part of pain circuits. They're part of intestinal circuits. They're part of cancer circuits, of communication, either for or against, positive and negative. And then- Now, the latest is that viruses are part of that. Now, everyone thinks viruses are bad, but they aren't. They aren't bad. We wouldn't be here without viruses. You have to understand something about viruses. And I talk about it in my book. Viruses are the repository of all information. They have trillions of times more strands of DNA and RNA than every other creature combined. They have the creative thing of creating new strands. And they're transferring these back and forth and all over the place. So if you look at our DNA, you look at our cell, we've discovered the big shock was that only 2% of our DNA is supposedly relevant to making proteins, which everyone thought, you know, was a lot more than that, 2%. And then they found that another 48% perhaps are involved in potentially regulating that 2%. But the other 50% are what's called jumping genes, which are basically viruses. Our cell is at least 50% viruses, but it's actually more. It's actually 60% for another reason, I'll tell you. So these jumping genes are little strands of DNA that like viruses can sew themselves in, move around, jump from here, jump to there. And a lot of Evolution has come, in fact, most evolution has come from these jumping genes giving the cell a new piece of information, and then we use that to make new products. But meanwhile, a lot of it are bad. Some are good products, some are bad products, so we have to fight against it. So there's this battle going on, and epigenetics, everyone talks about epigenetics, the markings on uh, the DNA and the proteins that protect the DNA was created by the cell to fight against the jumping genes and control them. We're trying to control them, but let me just share one more thing. When the guy won the Nobel Prize to create a stem cell for the first time, he took a muscle cell and made it a stem cell, and then it became a neuron, okay? Take a skin cell, you make it a muscle cell. The way they did that is they had certain factors, certain molecules that they found that are critical to trigger DNA in certain ways to bring it back to being a stem cell those factors come from viruses they are come from retroviruses like an hiv type virus that was put in our dna a million a year 2 million 10 million years ago and we then use those products to make stem cells so 10% of our as well as the 50% another 10% are from retroviruses put into our dna now let me just give you a couple of things I mean, this is a big story but our brain would not have developed without these virus factors. The fact that we develop our human brain so quickly, 30 million years, is very quick to go from a small brain to a huge cortex. And that's because of these viral genes that are there. The placenta, when we first developed the human placenta, that comes from a virus gene. Everyone knows the spike protein on COVID. That's a connecting part. It's a protein that connects one cell to the virus. That type of connecting molecule was given to us by a virus millions of years ago. That's created the placenta. The placenta is attached. Okay. Myelin, everyone talks about neuroplasticity. That's myelin surrounding the cells. Just a month ago was discovered that comes from a virus. All kinds of factors. So in our body, you have microbes lining the gi tract and which our gut cell is very intelligent is choosing which are our friends and which are our enemies the friendly ones they bring near the mucus near the layer they protect us they create vitamins they make fiber they they eat the fiber they are our friends there are trillions of viruses that work with those microbes that are our friends also and those viruses attack enemy bacteria that want to attack the human cell so viruses Not only are we viruses, but our CNA, you know, is more than 50% viruses. We need them. And that's how we've gotten all the information for evolution. This idea that it's random is ridiculous. That's totally stupid. They took one narrow interpretation of the brilliant Darwin stuff. You know, Darwin's very brilliant, and I love his stuff. But they took... This competition, they said, everything is competition and therefore we should destroy each other and fight and capitalism. You know, the whole thing is, you know, you're allowed to destroy everyone because nature is competition. Well, the truth is nature is 98% cooperation. You couldn't have this community of cells working together without collaboration. You couldn't have ecology, you couldn't have trees, you can't have nature. It's 98% cooperation and some competition. And that view, the fanatical group that misinterprets Darwin, don't like that. They don't like that view. So anyone who says, that, you know, they're an enemy of the people, but that's the fact. And the fact is viruses, we are viruses. We're getting information. Now, why are they so bad? Well, what happens is a virus is happily living with a bat or a shrew for millions of years And then we come along and destroy the forest and move into that area. And this virus says, hmm, what is this? Oh, a human. This is interesting. I'll jump onto the human. Wow, this is very good. Not only that, but there's billions of them. I can really grow here. This is fantastic. And they jump and they develop a way to be part of the humans. It's our destruction of ecology that is creating these nasty viruses. 30 years ago... We found out that microbes communicate and took this long for us to realize the implications of that, which is that their communication is everywhere. It's all over. It's communicating to all our cells, with our cancers, with our heart, with our brain. It's everywhere and they're vital to us. So it took 30 years. Four years ago, we discovered the first signal, the communication signal from a virus. I knew they were there because I had been writing about the lifestyle of the virus. And the lifestyle of the virus is so complicated that they have to be communicating in order to do what they're doing. But no one had proven it. Four years ago, they proved it. And then since then, it's become a whole thing called sociovirology where 15 other languages are found of a lot of the common viruses. And they're part of the signaling conversation. Now, some people want to say viruses aren't alive. I told you the problem of defining life. But they are alive, and that's ridiculous. But you have, the way you have to think about it, like if there's a spore from a plant and it's floating, that's it's sort of hibernating. It's not really alive in the same sense as the plant, but it is alive. It's going to come back. The virus, when they're outside of the cell, are like a spore. Once they hit the cell, they take over the cell. How can this little tiny thing with 10 genes take over the cell? But they do. And they create factories and they build these factories and they put their enzymes in a row. They hang them up in a big room and they, they then manufacture more of them. And they manipulate the cell and they evade and they create decoys. And I have many posts on that on my website. I, I talk about Ebola and HIV and dengue and herpes. I describe the lifestyle and the lifestyle is unbelievably complicated. And so now we know they're signaling, they're talking just like ourselves. So when, you, when you take that logic of
1: they're signaling, they're talking to themselves, and you look at what we just went through the last two and a half years with the pandemic, and even that mutation, are there things that then, that you're saying are coming out of that, that we can learn a lot from, which allow us in the future to ensure something like this doesn't
0: happen again, because we can start to then begin to understand the language. Yes, obviously, but there's no common sense. Ignorance and prejudice has taken over, and there's just no common sense being involved in that. The people who can tell us what to do, no one cares about or wants to listen to. So, I mean, in the past, it was obvious that if typhoid Mary, if you have a disease that's going to kill the community, you isolate that person. I mean, you know, there was no question. And today, people don't get it. They don't care. They're just so self-centered that they... Couldn't care less about other people's health. So the whole area of public health, is yes, of course we could do that. We can stop intruding upon viruses. We could stop having outdoor markets that bring all kinds of exotic creatures together so all their exotic viruses can meet each other and become friends and mutate and become more powerful. You know, there's a million things we could do. Obviously, sensible public health measures that no one wants to listen to. You know, this whole pandemic didn't have to be like this. It was just stupidity that built it up. I saw it coming in November of 19. I told my wife, I said, we better get a freezer because this is coming and the world is stupid. So viruses are everywhere. They are the dominant light form. Every cell, there's a trillion viruses. Bacteria, everyone thinks is the dominant light form, and it is other than viruses. If we destroy human life, which we're probably doing, the cells will be fine. The viruses will be fine. The bacteria will be fine. They'll create a whole new thing. I mean, they'll just keep going. They'll adapt. I mean, you know, we had the first big oil accident in the ocean, in the Gulf. It wasn't mm-hmm. the first, but, and everyone says, oh my God, what's going to happen? We can't do anything. It'll be terrible, terrible. The bacteria said, set up, but this is great. We'll eat it. It's food and they cleaned it up. So it wasn't nearly as bad as anyone thought because the climate change, probably if we let it, the microbes would adapt and figure it out because they're the ones that control the atmosphere. Half of the microbes that make oxygen in the ocean are killed every day by viruses, every day. And a new group comes up. The bacteria are controlling the atmosphere. If we understand how to, how they're talking and what they're doing, That's how we could influence the climate. But there's no common sense. I mean, common sense is gone. And science is the enemy now. So that's a big problem. (laughs) I don't know what to say.
1: How do you then look after yourself, or more specifically, look after your brain? How do you make sure that your brain kind of stays?
0: Oh, okay, yes, brain health. So there are basically six things that I emphasize when you talk about brain health. You know, some of it is obvious. People know, but they don't understand exactly why. Like, for example, sleep. People everywhere you read, you have to get more sleep, et cetera, which is true. It wasn't apparent to everyone that during sleep, things happen. Both learning occurs, whatever you learn during the day, they, what they do at night is they unhook all the synapses when you're asleep. Which saves an enormous amount of energy because the brain, although it's only two, three percent of the body, uses twenty five percent of the energy, and almost all of that is from the synapses, the signaling of the neurons. So at night they just quiet that down, save a lot of energy, and then they rehook the ones that are important and let the other ones kind of slide. So they strengthen new learning, for good or bad, good learning and addiction. So both good learning and bad learning can be strengthened. So that's one thing. But the other thing that's become apparent is that during the nighttime, the neurons shrink in half. So there's a lot of fluid and there's a flow of fluid through the brain that cleans out all these nasty clumps of proteins that cause dementia and other diseases. Mm -hmm. So there's a natural clean. It's one of three or four natural cleaning processes, but the sleep one's very important. And so this cleaning occurs. There are others. And uh, so a lot happens during sleep. So sleep is very important.
1: Do you have to sleep Uh, a particular amount of time for that cleaning process to
0: happen? I'm just curious. This sleeping eight hours a day at once is a modern invention. Benjamin Franklin would sleep two hours, work for three or four hours, sleep two hours, work for three or four hours, sleep two hours. They go in cycles around two hours, an hour after two hours. And we need three or four of those cycles. It could be at any time. I guess in the modern life, to calm down and really get into the mood of sleep, we have to do it all at once, but it doesn't have to be all at once. Anyway, so that's one thing. The second of the six is exercise. Now, everyone knows exercise is a magic bullet, but one, and for health, but one of the aspects of the magic bullet is that it increases neuroplasticity. There's a window where you can learn much faster. So let's say you take a mouse and you exercise it on the treadmill. And then right after that, you give it cocaine. That mouse will become addicted much faster right after exercise because it's learning faster. So you can learn good things or bad things. And these are choices, you know, how to use the brain after exercise. So it's good to exercise and then use the brain in some positive way that's the second thing Uh, the third thing is kind of obvious uh, diet and diet is highly tied in with microbes so for example let me give you an example so red meat I mean there's a lot of reasons that it's not good but one of the reasons has nothing to do with the red meat and it's one of the most significant things and this is because when you eat red meat it attracts a certain kind of microbe that eats something from the red meat called carnitine and then creates a chemical called TMA, this chemical goes to the liver, is altered into another chemical, TMAO, and that's what creates atherosclerosis in the heart. So that atherosclerosis in this reason has nothing to do with the red meat. It has to do with the microbes that are attracted to the red meat. So when you are a vegetarian, you attract one kind of microbes. When you are a meat eater, you attract another kind. And those are very significant. To me, the most important thing about food is you look at the label, and if you see words that you don't understand and that aren't in English, that are EDXM, LVR, EDF, like letters, those are chemicals. You don't want those. Anytime you look at the label and there's words that you don't comprehend, you shouldn't eat them, because these are chemicals that the body has to get rid of, and often doesn't know how to get rid of because they're brand new. There's things we invented that the body's never seen before. And they have to deal with these chemicals that are mucking up everything. So the most important thing is not to eat processed food. That's the most important thing. Then on top of that, you know, you could take a thousand vitamins and not take what's in a blueberry because there's a thousand chemicals in a blueberry. We don't know what it is. But we do know that blueberries are magical and all the berries are magical. And all the vegetables are magical. They all have a thousand things that are extremely good. Cauliflower, everything, cabbage, even tomatoes, everything. Avocados, all of it has incredible positive things that we cannot duplicate as vitamins. So another thing I say is don't take pills, take food. Eat food, not pills, and eat a lot of berries. Nuts are good, but they're a little fattening. So you can eat some. The famous Obama thing where he ate seven almonds, he would put out seven almonds, but he's very disciplined. Not everyone can do that. When I open a jar of, uh, of nuts, I tend to eat too much, so I have to put out what I'm going to take. Anyway, avocados are wonderful. Anyway, vegetable, and then of course, whole grains are very, very good. They help with diabetes, all kinds of things. So just logical. The fourth thing, what's been learned in neuroscience is how active the brain is. It's not a static thing. It's constantly changing. That's the old Dylan thing. Anyone not being born is busy dying. The brain is turning over. It's changing, it's changing. And the way we use our brain is everything. So I wrote a, an article, it's on my website, about the data that shows that elderly brains, everyone thinks old people have poor brains. And you know, it used to be they were considered them wise, but now, you know, with the youth culture and the crazy media. Everything, you know, elders are demented and it's all youth and the youth brains are better, but they aren't. The studies show very conclusively how the elderly brain, if they're active, not if they're not active, but if they're an active brain, used doing certain things I'll mention, they're far better than the younger brain, far more pattern recognition, far more abilities to do things. Now, there's one problem with the elderly brain that confuses everyone, and that is that there is word finding problem. So it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, what's that word? Oh God, I can't remember that word. That increases in elderly, no doubt. And that's confused for not thinking and not uh, having brain when actually the elderly brain is better. But so the way you use the brain matters and that's where neuroplasticity comes. So let me give you an example. You're a high jumper and you're going to do the jump and you visualize the jump beforehand. And if you visualize it, beforehand, you do it 30% better. But if while you're visualizing the jump, when you're about to jump in your mind, you go like this with your hands, you're 45% better. Well, that's kind of crazy. What is that about? Well, studies show also you take two classrooms of 10 year olds and teach them math. And in one, you just teach them. In the other, you point at the blackboard. You point here and point here. Every time you do something, you point and show it. They do much better. Well, what is that about? Well, when we learn something or have an experience, a circuit is created in the brain that travels throughout the brain. The wider and bigger that circuit is, the stronger the learning and the experience is. So what happens with the high jump is you've included a visualization with a physical movement and it incorporated a whole other part of the brain. Let me give you another example. What are the most powerful experiences? Yeah. Well, music. You're at a concert. What's going on? You hear the rhythm, which is very powerful. You hear the melody. You know the melody. You know the band. You know the history of the band. You know the people you're with. You know their history. You have relationships with the people. You're dancing. All kinds of things are happening. Those are the most powerful experiences because wide circuits in the brain are being used. Now, you add to that a spiritual thing, a church. You add a religious experience That's the most powerful experience because the widest and biggest brain is being used. So what is it we should do with our brains? So everyone says, oh, if I do crossword puzzles, will I improve my brain? The answer is no. You'll include your ability to do crosswords, but you won't include the general capacity of the brain. So things that include the capacity include, like what I'm saying, like music, playing music, being part of dance, gardening, crafts being active in your business, doing volunteering, things that involve intention, concentration, movement, interaction. These are using the brain and that's what builds circuits for the developing brain. Now, one other aspect of the brain is when we remember something, a new cell is made in the hippocampus, that new cell I was talking about, and the memory is somehow affiliated with that. And when the new memory develops, it starts creating connections and connections. And then the old memory is always there, but the new memory gradually takes over. So if you have a traumatic event, there's a thing called reconsolidation of memory, where the brain reconsolidates that memory at night and rebuilds the connection. So what you do is you re-remember the event, but add to it, With a perspective that's new and has loving qualities to it, has positive qualities, something. My new relationship, this, that, and the other, I survived, whatever. And you chip away at the memory and you decrease the trauma slightly and you keep doing that and you gradually can recreate the memory in a context of less trauma. Then the sixth thing that is very significant, but is nature. I don't know why, and I have a crazy theory why. I mean, nature, being in nature has a very significant effect on the brain. If you put on a a beanie that's an EEG and you walk in the woods, you're already meditating. Just being in the woods affects the brain. If you're in a hospital bed and you have a flower, you do better. If you're in an apartment and you can look down the street and see a tree, you do better. If you're near nature, if you have plants... It's a magical effect. I liken it to we're complementary. We breathe out CO2, they breathe out oxygen. We now know that plants all talk to each other through the forest, through fungal wires. We're part of that communication. We're part of the ecological conversation of all the cells to each other. I mean, we know that trees now know their children, try to protect them, send information through these wires. And this is all cold science now and these are through wires of fungus and they send signals to each other and they know who their families are and they know anyway so those are the six things that i emphasize for brain health those are six powerful interesting things and
1: my brain goes back into i can see how even during periods of Lockdown, for example, where some of those things were taken away. i have been able to walk in nature, and some of the different things that you mentioned, from being able to exercise, it had such a massive impact on like people's mental health and the way that they were showing up because your brain couldn't be in those environments, do those different things that keep your brain kind of healthy. So it's interesting, interesting how if what you said right at the end around wearing a beanie hat and being in nature—that's and nothing—or <laughs> having a flower in the hospital. Why would that make any difference? I mean, flowers, normally just get people because it's a nice thing to do. No, and the fact of thinking that there's a scientific impact that having flowers in the environment can have because
0: of the nature impact on your brain. This is all proven. It's all proven science, all those effects. You know, we don't know exactly why. I have my crazy ideas, but the fact is it, it is real and we are part of nature and we have to place ourselves back into it, I think.
1: Wow. As we kind of come towards the end of this interview, which has been really fascinating, really opened my mind up to a lot of things I do not know. The one thing I did want to finish off with was around neuroplasticity, because a lot of times, I know you've done a lot of work with a lot of brain injured patients and neuroplasticity around the abilities for your brain to to, to change. But does that only occur with brain injuries, or is it something that we can do on a day-to-day basis through training to, for one of the better words, change the adage of you can't teach your old dog new tricks? Well, you can because
0: your brain can be rewired with some intentionality. Yes. It's it's those things I mentioned, using the brain for good, meaningful activity, things that mean something to you that you focus on. You can start with some meditation. Meditation is very good meditation. You know, the brain normally fluctuates in milliseconds between focus and free association. And so we're focusing and then we're bringing in. And the the bringing in the, is the creativity and meditation strengthens both. So it strengthens both the focus and then the associations. So you get more associations. But The neuroplasticity comes through these things that I've mentioned, the exercise, the eating, the sleeping, the using the brain in this positive way for meaningful activities that include movement and concentration. But the most important factor in what to do with the brain is to do something meaningful to you, whatever that is. The meaningfulness is what triggers the most neuroplasticity. That's why the church experience and the music experience are so powerful
1: mentioned meditation a number of times and I'm, I'm curious because there are so many different ideas and examples of what meditation looks like, depending on what how you practice. So do you aspire to a particular mode of meditation or are you just really open about
0: whatever that means to you, that's what meditation means? Well, I was a meditation teacher in the 60s and I've been meditating ever since. And I met a lot of the gurus back then. Mm-hmm. So there are meditation techniques where you relax the whole body. There are meditation techniques where you dwell on a positive thought. There are meditation techniques where you have a, a meaningful m- mantra or phrase. There are meditation techniques where you place yourself in the hands of a guru or God or a spiritual being. There are meditation techniques that involve like the Sufi dancing that involve movement a yoga should be a meditation technique, not an athletic competition or a, a business. You know, they've taken this spiritual thing from a religious tradition and turned it into a business. I mean, meditation, like everything else has become a corrupt business. It's ridiculous. You know, it's absurd. So meditation is free everyone can meditate and should, uh, meditation means clearing your mind, However, you can do that, but there are certain things that help more than others. Like, for example, asking the question, who am I over and over? What am I? Am I the same person I've been like for 30 years when I was a kid? And what am I here for? What am I doing here? What am I here for? And then clear your mind of all the things that you must do and need to do, your house, your money, your relationships, and then clear your mind of the body by relaxing systematically each part of the body. And then you do your practice, whatever that is. It could be, I always tell people, you know, using the breath, don't buy a mantra. Find a religious saying. Find something meaningful to you in your own tradition and use that as your mantra. Use that as a thing to meditate from. If you're part of a particular meditation school. They may have good mantras for you, but sometimes they don't work because they're not in your in your own tradition. They're not what you're really comfortable with. So you really have to uh, do it yourself. Meditation, however, with groups strengthens your practice. It doesn't change the internal issues of how to do it, but it does strengthen that you do it every day. I mean, the most important thing about meditation is to do it every day. And to do it for 10, 15, 20 minutes, at least once a day, every day. To me, meditation is like flossing. If I don't meditate, I don't feel right. It's like my mouth feels dirty. To me, the state of behind the thoughts, behind the anxieties, there's a state where it's just us. It's just me. And that me is deep and really includes everyone. and really includes nature includes the sun, light. And whatever's behind all the thoughts is there. I find if I don't dip in that well each day, I just don't feel it. Right. So to me, it's more than a habit. It's like an essential. It's like, like eating or like breathing. But that's how it should become. You have to do it 10, 15 minutes a day, and then it can go to a half an hour. The best thing to do to meditate is to have one chair or one place. Don't sit in a yoga posture if you're not a yogi and can't be comfortable that way. You have to be stress-free. So you find a, a comfortable straight back chair, unless you're comfortable sitting on a pillow. Most Westerners are not. And they spend their time thinking about their hip and their knee rather than meditating. I mean, it's good to do yoga. It's good to do the postures. That's great. And again, when you do yoga, you should be meditating. You should be doing a mantra or seeing the image. So the brain works through sound and sight. 90% of the brain is hearing and sight. So if you have an image and a sound, you've taken up the brain. So if you can focus on light and your mantra, everything else will dissolve away. Or maybe just the sound will take over, and you'll just be totally absorbed by your the repetition of your mantra, which has to be a good phrase, a phrase meaningful to you that has a positive effect. In other words, you could meditate on something evil, and that would make you evil. You can meditate on something good, and that will make you good. These are choices we have. This is not a mystery. If we focus on negative things, we're going to become negative. And the brain will become negative we'll be very good at doing evil things we have to use our brain we have to take charge of our brain and direct it it's a tool that we use it's a powerful way to kind of end this but a
1: really really important ones around I guess for me is hurting the intentionality of what you're saying around even being able to direct your brain because what you focus on is what's gonna make a difference. You're focusing on (laughs) bad that's where you're gonna kinda gonna manifest. So even that is really, really important around being intentional around how you look after yourself, how you look after your brain, where you focus in your mind, recognizing there is no separation between both of them. Well actually more importantly, it's also realizing that there's so much we don't know. And a lot of what you touched on today it's it's new. And it's changing the way that science has viewed things around cells and, and nature for so long. And it's still coming out. So this, the fact that there's so much we don't know, it will reinforce the fact that we need to have more of an open mind around things and around approaches rather than being so
0: close-minded. Absolutely. The dogmas take over and they rule, and then they start making money off the grants. There's an old saying, the old professors never change their mind because they want their their money. They want their grants with their theories. What happens is they die off and the younger people come up with the new ideas. Some elderly people are able to change their mind, but most of the professors are dug in in their narrow money-making theories. Like with Alzheimer's, this amyloid thing took over. You couldn't do anything else because they ruled the grants and they led it down a wrong path for 30 years. That's why we're not learning about Alzheimer's. I mean, Alzheimer's, amyloid's part of it, but it's not the thing that they made it into. Um, And if it is part of it, it's different than it was thought. It's part of it. Anyway, that's a whole other subject. I'm involved in bioscience and those studies. But uh, yeah, the professors dig in and rule the grants. They They run the who gets what, and they keep it in their one narrow theory. They don't allow new theories to reimbursed but then eventually they die off and the younger people take over and it changes and the new ideas are adopted i like that phrase what i'm gonna keep
1: going forward <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much today for thank you sir the contribution and everything that you kind of poured into poured out there that's um really really insightful and a different way to start thinking about things so that's a john leaf stay with the leadership